Well, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And if you're visiting with us tonight, we've been working our way through this uh, very strange Old Testament book, probably one of the most uh, controversial books, not just in the Old Testament, but the entire Bible. And uh, it's caused uh, many questions in people's minds over the years. In fact, some people wonder how in the world it even got in the Bible to begin with because it seems at times to uh, say things that seem to contradict the rest of the Bible. And uh, Ecclesiastes is uh, one, uh, is a great example of um, how Scripture, while inspired by God, by, inspired by the Holy Spirit, there are sections of it that are more descriptive than prescriptive. What I mean by that is, They just simply describe the situation, the scene, the person's heart at the time. It doesn't mean that it's right or wrong, um, but this is what it was. And it wasn't necessarily prescribing for us, this is how you should think, this is how you should live, but we know already there's been some uh, pretty strange uh, statements that uh, Solomon has made in this book that you're like, that doesn't sound very Christian, doesn't sound very biblical. Well, he's just simply expressing um, human thought apart from God. And again, the book's not advocating that we believe these things, that we think these things, but uh, it's revealing to us what happens when you leave God out of life. This is what you're left with. And so it's a very interesting kind of backdoor way to um, confront us and convict us uh, of the need for God. And that life without God is meaningless. And so, anyway, we're going to be looking at uh, chapter 7, verses 15 through 29. And uh, here we began last week in chapter 7, verse 1, looked at verses 1 through 14. And uh, we saw the transition here uh, in Solomon's oracles or his journals, if you will, Uh, to more of a wise outlook on life. And I guess I would just start by saying this, that I think that Solomon was the wisest fool who ever lived. The wisest fool who ever lived. And I say that because when he ascended to the throne of Israel in place of his father David, God promised to grant him whatever he asked. And he humbly and wisely asked for what? Wisdom and discernment to lead the nation of Israel. He knew he didn't have the wisdom and discernment it would take to lead the entire nation of Israel. And so he asked God for wisdom and discernment. And so God answered his request uh, by blessing him with an overabundance of wisdom to the point where people from all over the world traveled many miles and many months to sit at his feet and just soak in his great wisdom. And uh, his wisdom is preserved for us here in, in three of the five wisdom books of the Old Testament, we talk about the wisdom literature, right? You've got, uh, you've got history in the Old Testament. You've got prophecy in the Old Testament, but you also have poetry in the Old Testament. Those are really the three genres of the Old Testament, history, poetry, and prophecy. And the center section uh, of, of the Old Testament is the poetry section, and there's five books. What are they? Job's, 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 Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Those are the five uh, poets, if you will, or the five wisdom books 
um, as they're, they're referred to. And, and Proverbs and, and, and Song of Solomon really reveal the fruit of Solomon's wisdom. Pretty straightforward, relatively easy to understand for the most part. But Ecclesiastes, on the other hand, can be very puzzling in places and seems to contradict how a man as wise as Solomon would view life and live life. It seems he seems to be a contradiction. I thought you're the wisest man in the world. Why are you doing this? Why are you living this way? Why are you thinking this way? Why are you talking this way? And so Solomon applied the wisdom that God had granted him to pursue the true meaning and purpose of life and to find true happiness and satisfaction in life, but he did it at first apart from God. It's like, hey, God, thanks for the wisdom. Now I'm going to go take that wisdom that you gave me, and I'm going to go pursue happiness in life apart from you. Talk about uh, biting the hands that feed you, right? Being ungrateful. And he says that at the beginning of this book, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, you remember in verse 13, this is 1.13, and I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. In other words, life stinks and then you die, right? I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened and what is lacking cannot be counted. We learned that last week. What, who can straighten out what God has made crooked, right? We talked about the crook in our lot. Verse 16, I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge, and I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I realize that this is also a striving after the wind, because in such wisdom there is much grief, and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. In other words, the more you know, the more it hurts. And so really the first half of his memoirs here are very dark and depressing. And uh, after several years, I guess we don't know for sure how many years this took him, this pursuit of, uh, of um, happiness, but after years of foolishly searching to fill the hole in his heart with worldly pursuits and pleasures, he confessed that he lacked the wisdom to answer life's toughest questions. I'm the smartest man in the world, right? And, I, and even I don't have enough wisdom to answer life's tough questions. And so he begins to describe here, starting in chapter 7, how he wised up and returned to the Lord to find the wisdom that he was lacking. Interesting. God gave him this huge batch of wisdom, more than any of us will ever have, right? And it was still not enough. And he came to the same conclusion as Job, also part of the poets, uh, the, the wisdom literature of Scripture, who was also trying to figure out life and find answers to questions that were beyond his human understanding. I mean, think about Job, what he had to deal with, right? He had some questions for God about life and why things happen. And in Job chapter 28, Job chapter 28, verse 12, he says this, but where can wisdom be found and where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. In other words, I'm trying to figure out life here and I can't come up with the answers to the questions I have about life. And he says, I, I haven't found the answers anywhere here on this earth. 
It's not here in the land of the living. It's somewhere else. And he goes on to say in verse 23, God understands its way and he knows its place for he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he imparted weight to the wind and meted out the waters by measure, when he set a limit for the rain and a course for the thunderbolt, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and has also searched it out. Just talking about God's sovereign control over all things. And to man he said, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And so Job concluded, hey, I I was left scratching my head trying to figure out what in the world was going on in my life, in the world, and why was all these bad things happening to me? And he said, finally, I realized I wasn't going to find the answer here on this earth. And and, and wisdom begins and ends with the fear of the Lord. And that's exactly what Solomon had concluded. And he shares in, in... Starting in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Uh, Proverbs 9, 10, he says it again, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And then he carries this theme over into the book of Ecclesiastes, and we've already seen it a couple times. This is a theme. We know this is one of the themes of the book of Ecclesiastes is the fear of God, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 15, excuse me, uh, verse 14, I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it, and there is nothing to take from it, for God has so worked that men should fear him. Chapter 5, verse 7, for in him, for in many dreams and in many words there is emptiness, rather fear God. And then in our text tonight, Chapter 7, verse 18, it is good that you grasp one thing and also let not go of the other, for the one who fears God comes forth with both of them. Chapter 8, verse 12, notice this theme continuing, although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God, who fear him openly. And then finally, the, the climax, the crescendo of this book, we're getting there, Ecclesiastes 12, 13, the conclusion when all has been heard is what? Fear God God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. So whatever it means to fear God, it's very important. And so what does it mean to fear God? Well, what does all this talk about fearing God being the beginning of wisdom? Well, basically to fear God means to humbly and respectfully acknowledge that there is a God That's the starting point, right? That you humble yourself and acknowledge that there is a God and that he sovereignly reigns over the entire universe and he providentially controls every detail of your life for his glory and your good. And the opposite of that is being a fool, a foolish person denies that there's a God, right? The Bible says a fool has said in his heart there is no God, right? So if you say, hey, I'm an atheist, well, then you might as well just say, I'm a fool. They're synonymous. Atheist and fool are synonymous according to Scripture. Because a fool says in his heart, there is no God. And so a a foolish person denies there's a God, and he thinks the world is a series of random events with no rhyme or reason. And that ultimately, he is, control of his, he is in control of his life and his destiny. That, that's a foolish person who, say, who thinks that. There is no God. 
life is just, you know, we're just on this ball, this spinning ball in the universe, and uh, it's, it's, it's a series of random events, um, and uh, there is no, because there's no God, there's no, uh, there will be no judgment day, and so because there's no judgment day, I can do whatever I want. And that's why you have so many people in our world doing whatever is right in their own eyes, right? It's kind of like the judges, right? They just, whatever, because they're not, they're not thinking about the judgment day, which, which Solomon in Ecclesiastes is going to get to. At the very end, he says, for God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. And so this foolish way of thinking that there is no God and that you're in control of your life and, and, and really what happens to you can't ever be figured out, this leads to disillusionment and despair. And that's exactly what Solomon experienced until he began to rightly apply the wisdom that God had so graciously given him. It's as if he, he, was, he had this wisdom and he was applying it wrongly at first, but then he began to apply it rightly. And he begins talking a lot about wisdom here in chapter 7 and, and on. I said last week about 35 times in the rest of this book, the last half of this book. And uh, he opens chapter 7 with a series of Proverbs. It sounds very, it reads very much like the book of Proverbs. Um, and, and they really just offer a godly perspective on how to deal with life. Namely, his bottom line here, I think, in verses 1 through 14 was consider this. That God doesn't just know what's good for you, but he knows what's best for you, right? And sometimes he even makes, you know, part of his perfect plan are the imperfections in our lives, the crooks in our lot, um, because he knows what's best for us. And then he goes on after making that point uh, in the rest of this chapter, I, I think there, uh, a way we can look at this is, is four effects or four results of wisdom when it is properly applied to our everyday lives. In other words, what does wisdom do for us? When, when wisdom's at work in our lives, when we put wisdom to work in our lives, biblical wisdom, godly wisdom, as, as, it, as it works itself out in our lives, wh what does it look like? What effect does it have in our lives? What are the results? And so Solomon here is exemplifying for us how godly wisdom works itself out in life. This, this is the result, and I, I, I'm going to give you four results or four effects here tonight. Number one, godly wisdom guards us from extremes and keeps us balanced. That sounds helpful, right? Guards us from extremes and keeps us balanced. That's verses 15 to 18. Secondly, it governs our lives and keeps us from taking ourselves and others too seriously. Anybody ever do that? That's verses 19 through 22. Third, Godly wisdom guides us through life and keeps us out of harm's way. Anybody could use a little of that, right? Staying out of harm's way, verses 20, 23 through 26. And then finally, godly wisdom gauges our relationships and keeps us mindful of our own sin. And so let's look at these four effects or results, very practical tonight, uh, ways that wisdom helps us in our lives. Number one, it guards us from extremes and keeps us balanced. It guards us from extremes and keeps us balanced. Look at verse 15. Solomon says, I've seen everything during my lifetime of futility. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. 
Do not be excessively righteous and do not be overly wise. Why should you ruin yourself? Do not be excessively wicked and do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? So Solomon is essentially saying, listen, I've seen it all. I've seen it all. And uh, particularly what he saw that, that troubled him was he saw exceptions to the rule and, and contradictions that didn't make sense to him. For example, that God clearly promised in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, the general attitude of the Old Testament was, God says, if you obey me, I'll bless you. If you disobey me, I'll what? I'll curse you. So God promised that he would reward the righteous and punish the wicked. But that's not what Solomon saw. That was not his experience. He saw righteous people dying before their time and wicked people living to a ripe old age. He saw innocent people suffering unjustly and guilty people getting off scot-free, which dismayed him, which, which, which angered him. It's, it's uh, very much like Asaph in Psalm 73 when he confessed his envy of the wicked. Remember that? And how he said, I almost lost it. I almost just punted my faith and forgot that God was good because I was so consumed with all these, the, the wicked, and they were just prospering. And here I was trying to be righteous and keep myself pure, and I was, seemed to be suffering and dealing with all these trials, and that just didn't seem fair. It didn't seem right. And he expresses his frustration with God, and, and uh, he finally came into the presence of God and got his perspective straight. But that's where Solomon was at. He was seeing this inequity. And because he couldn't see this con consistent connection between obedience and God's blessing or sin and God's cursing, he concluded the best policy is don't go too far in either direction. Don't be overzealous in your pursuit of righteousness and don't be overindulgent in your pursuit of wickedness. Notice verse 16 and 17 again. Do not be excessively righteous and do not be overly wise. Why should you ruin yourself? Verse 17, do not be excessively wicked, do not be a fool, why should you die before your time? Either, either extreme is not good. Now, don't think for a second that Solomon was, was giving us kind of a shallow, middle-of-the-road, unbiblical conclusion, which some have called the golden mean, which is basically kind of just walk down the middle, right? Um, he wasn't advocating that we obey God half-heartedly kind of just apathetically, or he was not saying that we could sin against him just periodically. It's, just, it's okay to sin, just don't do it too much, right? Because that's how it sounds, doesn't it? That's not what he was saying. What he was doing was he was urging his readers, urging us to not depend on our own wisdom or our own righteousness to guarantee God's blessing. Um, there's plenty of godly people who get cancer. And if they're thinking, hey, I'm living a righteous life and, and I'm obeying the Lord and that means I'm immune from any kind of trials or suffering, you might have a, another thing coming, right? So don't, don't rely on your wisdom and your righteousness as a guarantee of God's blessing because you might be dis disappointed like the people that Solomon had seen perishing prematurely in spite of their righteousness. On the other hand, just because God chooses not to punish sin in some cases, don't take that as a license to sin. And say, well, you know, he doesn't always punish. I'll see if I can get away with this. 
See what happens. God never condones sin. His standard is always perfection. He's not looking for us to obey some of the time or even most of the time. He wants us to obey what? All the time. And so verse 18 kind of brings this thought to an end here, to a conclusion. He says, it is good that you grasp one thing and also not let go the other, for the one who fears God comes forth with both of them. Again, this is the idea here is stay balanced. We need to achieve balance in our lives by living in the fear of the Lord and in light of his omniscient, just judgment. I love what he says in chapter 11. Verse 9, and I love to use this verse with young people. If I ever have a chance to speak to teenagers, I say, hey, guys, I want to show you a verse in the scriptures. This is what God says. John, or excuse me, Ecclesiastes eleven nine. Rejoice, young man, during your childhood, and let your heart be pleasant during the days of your young manhood. And follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. And they're going, what? Are you serious? Wait, that's, where's that in the Bible? I didn't see that. Like, are you serious? God tells me to, to just have fun as a young person and follow the impulses of my heart and the desires of my eyes? Are you serious? I can actually do that? Yeah, you can do that. Yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. There's a balance there, right? And again, that wasn't like God saying, you know, hey, watch this. I'm going to tease you. Like, you can go out and do whatever you want. And then whack. He was saying, listen, go out and have a good time. Enjoy your life while you're young. That's the prime of life. But just know you're going to stand before God someday, so make sure you honor him in what you do. You can have a whole lot of fun honoring God. So he says, I already read this, 1214, for God will bring every act of judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it's good or evil. What, 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 what Solomon said in Proverbs 3, 7 kind of helps, I think, understand, helps us understand what he's saying here. Proverbs 3, 7, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. So basically, uh, a person who fears God, who honors God, who res- reveres God, avoids both extremes of being overly pious or self-righteous is maybe how we could say it. Or, that's one extreme you want to avoid, being overly pious and spiritual and self-righteous and holier than thou, right? We don't want to be there. Nor do we want to be overly loose or laissez-faire in our living. Like, oh, you know, it doesn't matter. God gives me freedom. I'm free in Christ and there's grace and I can do whatever I want. You don't want to be there either, right? There's a balance in life. And wisdom... Wisdom, godly wisdom, guards us from the extremes and keeps us balanced. Now, let's face it. Listen, we have a tendency to be pendulum swingers, right? That's just human nature. And so typically, we're either way over here, right? And we're some self-righteous Pharisee that's looking down our noses, wrapping ourselves in our robes of righteousness and pointing out everyone else's sin. And we're all spiritual and holy. You know, we don't, you know, somebody, I always joke when people say, hey, did you see that movie? I said, no, I was having my quiet time. I just, I just say that just to be funny. Oh, did you see this minute? No, I was having my quiet time. As if I'm like so spiritual, I don't go see movies. You know, I go see, I, lo- I love watching movies. They're fun. I love taking my family to go watch movies, right? Don't be this, but then on the other side, you know, there's some people, right, 
that are like, hey, you know what? It's okay. God, God gives us liberty in Christ, and I can do this, and I can do that. And it's not that big of a deal. As if you have a license to sin, right? And, and so we tend to be either way over here or way over here. And, and God says, man, be right here. Be balanced. And the only way you can be balanced is when you fear the Lord. There's so much we could talk about that, but hopefully that has made its point. So number one, godly wisdom guards us from extremes and keeps us balanced. Secondly, godly wisdom governs our lives and keeps us from taking ourselves and others too seriously. Verse 19 Wisdom strengthens a wise man more than 10 rulers who are in a city. Most cities in those days maybe had one ruler, somebody that was in charge of that city and was to govern that city. So Solomon says, listen, if you've got wisdom, true godly wisdom, you are stronger and more stable than a city that has 10 rulers. Can you imagine that? A city not just with one ruler, but 10 rulers. And so he's saying that uh, wisdom offers more protection here than, than maybe even military strength with all the rulers. Wisdom grants us what we need to handle the painful situations and the tensions that we face in life. Uh, Philip Ryken said it this way in this idea of governing our lives, how wisdom governs our lives. He said this, wisdom governs thought so the wise person knows how to think about things in a God-centered way. Wisdom governs the will so the wise person knows what choices to make in life. Wisdom governs speech so the wise person knows what to say and what not to say. Wisdom governs action, so the wise person knows what to do in any and every situation. And he says, take hold of wisdom and it will make you strong. I mean, you think about what a, what a strong, stable person you would be if, if you acted, you always acted according to wisdom, you always did the wisest thing, you always said the wisest thing, you, you, you always made the wisest choice, you always thought the wisest way. I mean, think about how strong and stable you'd be. But what he's saying is wisdom governs your life. And it keeps you from taking yourselves too seriously. Notice verse um, 20. This is one of the most important verses in the entire Bible when it comes to understanding man's depravity, man's sinfulness. He says, indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. There's no one on this planet who's perfect, who, who, who never does anything wrong, who doesn't say wrong things, do wrong things, make wrong choices, think wrong thoughts. There's no one who's totally righteous, who always does what's right, who never sins. Psalm 143, verse 2, another verse that states something similar. Psalm 143, verse 2. For in your sight, no man living is righteous. Interesting, Paul, or yeah, Paul in Romans in the New Testament could be possibly quoting from Ecclesiastes, 
which isn't often quoted from in the, in the New Testament, and it doesn't specifically say he was quoting from Ecclesiastes. Listen, listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 10. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. And here it is. Why, why are men like this? Why are human beings like this? Why are they so sinful? Because there is no fear of God before their eyes. I always thought it was interesting back in the, the 80s and 90s uh, when I was involved in youth ministry, one of the popular clothing uh, lines was called No Fear. Remember that? And I thought, that's so appropriate. That is our world today, is no fear. They have no fear of God before their eyes. And they don't even realize that it's a self-proclaimed you know, judgment. <laughs> They're saying what Scripture says. We have no fear. There's no fear of God before our eyes. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so, again, Solomon was, was completely aware uh, there was not a righteous man on the planet. And I think this is a reminder to us that we, we need to have a, a healthy sense of our own sinful imperfection, which ultimately will help us um, take criticism in stride, for example. Notice the next verse. He says, indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Also, do not take seriously all words which are spoken so that you will not hear your servant cursing you, for you also have realized that you likewise have many times cursed others. So what he's saying is that wisdom helps us to sort out criticism that's valid and invalid, helps us sift through and discern the truth in what's being said and forget what's untrue and unhelpful and just move on. Sometimes that's hard to do, right? How many of you guys like to be criticized? Anybody? Yeah, bring it on. I love it. I love to be criticized. Nothing I like more than to be criticized. And, and so we all face criticism in life. That's just life. And, and sometimes people say things about us that are unkind or unfair or untrue, or maybe just untimely. Just wasn't the best time to be telling me that. Even though I know it's true, right? That's probably not when I needed to hear it. Um, and what is he saying here? He's saying, don't take it so seriously. All the words which are spoken so that you will not hear your servant cursing you. In other words, it's foolish, unwise, to be overly concerned or troubled about what people say. I'll never forget a situation years ago when somebody walked into my office and just totally laid into me, just like uninvited, just walked in and said, no, 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 no. And I was like, whoa, where did that come from? And they totally accused my motives. Well, that's like, you can't just, you just can't do that. You can't judge people's motives because you don't know a person's heart. But this person, they were just going for it and they, they falsely accused my motives. And I was just like blown away. I didn't even know what to say. And I just basically say, hey, I'm sorry you feel that way, but 
I'll pray about it, okay? I don't know what else to say. I'll pray about it. Thank you for sharing that. And it was really hard to hear. And, you know, as I evaluated it, you know, I thought, man, okay, I don't think that's true, Lord. And if it is, please reveal that to me. And so I just forgot about it. And I didn't take it personally. And uh, so much so that I had forgot about it. About a year and a half later, this person came up to me in the parking lot and said, hey, I just want to ask your forgiveness for what I said to you that time in your office. And the Spirit of God had been working on their heart. Took them a year and a half, two years, right, to to come back and say they were sorry and ask forgiveness. And I said, you bet, I forgive you. And what I should have said is, I'm, I'm thankful that that's all you said about me, because if you really knew my heart, there was a whole lot of other things you could have said that would have been true. And you may have been saying, I had this big old um, log in my eye, and I didn't agree with you, but I got plenty of other ones. If you hang around me long enough, you'll see them, right? Again, what is that? That's an awareness of your own sin, that you're the worst sinner you know, right? And so somebody's chewing you out, and you're like, I'm glad they're talking about that, because if they knew this, they would really be chewing me out. You guys remember back in uh, 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 16, I love this story about uh, David uh, being cursed by Shimei. Is 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 5. When, David, when King David came to Burim, behold, there came out from there a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei. So obviously, you know, any descendant of Saul was not a big fan of David, right? Unless you're Jonathan. That was about the only one that loved David. But everyone else hated him because he basically took the place of their father, their uncle, whoever. And so here comes this guy from the house of Saul named Shimei, the son of Gera. He came out cursing continually as he came. He threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men were at the right hand and his left. This guy's got some guts. Because this is David, not just David, this is David and his mighty men. You didn't mess with the mighty men. Now these guys wouldn't think twice about taking your head off. And though, so this guy had some gall, and so the, the Shimei said when he cursed, get out, get out, you men of bloodshed and worthless fellow. The Lord has returned upon you all the bloodshed of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned, and the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom, and behold, you are taken in your own evil, for you are a man of bloodshed. In other words, you're getting everything you deserve right now for what you did to my family. Then Abishai, the son of Zeru, said to the king, and this is one of his mighty men, why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? Let me go over now and cut off his head. You got to love friends like that, right? Let me just go take him out. But the king said, and this is so profound, listen, the king said, what have I to do with you, O sons of Zeruai? If he curses, and if the Lord has told him, curse David, then who shall say, why have you done so? Hey, how do I know? Maybe God told him to curse me. Maybe God sent him to, to, to communicate something to me, to confront me about something. Then David said to Abishai and to all his servants, behold, my son who came out from me seeks my life, and how much more now this Benjamite? I let him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him. Perhaps the Lord will look on my affliction and return good to me instead of his cursing this day. In other words, maybe God will have compassion on me because this guy's cursing me. So David and his men went on their way 
And Shimei went along on the hillside parallel with him, and as he went, he cursed and cast stones and threw dust at him. This guy wouldn't quit. He wouldn't let up. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary, and he refreshed himself there. I love that line. So David and his men went on their way. They went on their way. And, you know, that's what we need to learn to do sometimes, right? And, and if you're uh, a fool, can't do that. If you're a fool, you can't just go on your way. What do you want to do? Oh, yeah? All right, come on. You want to say, right? You want to, you want to retaliate? You want revenge? You, you, you can't just walk away. Only wisdom gives you the ability to walk away. And so if we care too much about what people think or say about us or, or take too seriously what people think or say about us, then we're only asking to get hurt or offended. One of my favorite chapters in, in Spurgeon's uh, classic book called Lectures to My Students, it was a, a, a book that he compiled uh, of, of basically lessons, lectures that he had given his, 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 his pastor's college, the young men that came to learn how to be a pastor and a preacher from Spurgeon. And one of the titles is called Blind Eye, Deaf Ear. Classic Spurgeon. And basically he says, my best eye is my blind eye and my best ear is my deaf ear. And his whole point was, listen, young men, you need to establish a pattern and be wise and, and, and not believe everything you hear and, and not let what people say affect you. You're going to need to turn a blind eye to certain things that people do to you and turn a deaf ear to what people say to you or about you. And he said, he said this, and I love this line. He basically said, uh, however, um, however much you get excited and enthused and um, encouraged by people's praise, that's how much you'll be discouraged and bummed out by people's criticism. In other words, so don't get too excited when people praise you and don't get too bummed out when people criticize you. Just keep it even keeled. It all balances itself out, right? So when somebody comes and, and, and says, oh, pastor, that was a great sermon. Thank you so much. I, I literally try to just, just forget about it and move on. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to dwell on that, right? Because if that pumps me up, when someone says, well, that was a dumb day, you know, it's too long, too, well, man, we were late for lunch, or, you know, whatever. I don't know, people, that'll bum me out, you know, and I don't want it to bum me out. So, you know, you just let it go. And I love this. This is so practical. Verse 22, for you also have realized that you likewise have many times cursed others. In other words, you haven't always been at your best when it came to criticizing others, talking to others, right? You've said some things you've regretted that maybe were not founded. They were unfounded statements. They were untimely statements, right? And we need to always remember that we're guilty of saying things to others or about others that we're, we, we misjudge them at times. Anybody ever misjudge somebody and said something you wish you hadn't said or when you said it? And his point is, listen, we can't expect others to be perfect when we are so far from being perfect ourselves. And Riken says this, if we're wise, we'll let our own sinful words remind us not to take what other people say too much to heart, but make allowances for them instead, offering them the same grace that we ourselves need so often. 
Aren't you thankful that people are gracious to you when you mess up with something you say? Even if it's just in your family, your spouse or your kids. I mean, how many times you had to go to your wife, guys, and say, oh, honey, I shouldn't have said that or I shouldn't have said it that way. Would you forgive me? And she's gracious. She forgives you. Or you have to go to your kids. Hey, guys, you know what? I was angry and I, I raised my voice. Would you forgive? I was wrong. Would you please forgive me? And they say, yeah, we, I, yeah, we forgive you. Right? You get grace. You need to give grace. Riken goes on to suggest that we make sure our words pass a few simple tests before we say them, like this one, number one. Would I say this if that person were standing here? That's a good test. Would I say this about that person if they were standing right here? And is this the way I would say it? How about this one? Am I saying this for the glory of God and for the love of my brother or sister, or am I only saying it to vent my frustration and anger? Those are some good questions, right? And so all that to say, we're talking about wisdom here. And so, so wisdom, uh, according to Solomon here, governs our lives and keeps us from taking ourselves and others too seriously. Listen, you're going to say some sinful things. Get over it. <laughs> seek forgiveness. Ask God to forgive you. Seek other people to forgive you and move on. Don't beat yourself up over it. It's going to happen. Guess what? People are going to sin against you in the way they say, the way they talk, the, the way they say. So, so forgive them and move on. Don't take it seriously. Thirdly, godly wisdom guides us through life and keeps us out of harm's way. Godly wisdom guides us through life and keeps us out of harm's way. Verse 23, Solomon again is... is bemoaning the fact that he lacks the ability, even as wise as he was, to, to come to um, the proper answers in life. There was just still too many mysteries for his liking. Verse 23, I tested all this with wisdom, and I said, I will be wise, but it is far from me. What has, been, what has been is remote and exceedingly mysterious. Who can discover it? I directed my mind to know, to investigate, and to seek wisdom and an explanation, and to know the evil of folly and the f- foolishness of madness. And so there was no one who made a more serious attempt to understand the meaning of life than Solomon. And he used his wisdom to probe uh, the depths of humanity, and he expected to be able to unravel the, the mysteries of life and to answer life's tough questions, but they, there was just things he couldn't figure out. And the reason is because he was making all his investigations apart from God, and that life remained a, a riddle to him without special revelation, right? He needed to get... God and his word involved in, in trying to come up with some of the answers to life's questions. I mean, this is really the epitaph. You could put this on the, on the, on the gravestone of every philosopher, right? That, that, that I searched all this stuff out. I, I tried to think it all through. I directed my mind to know, to investigate, to seek wisdom and an explanation, to know. But guess what? Who can discover it? It's all still a mystery, that's why whenever I hear a young person saying, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to become a philosophy major, I'm like, are you sure about that? Have you prayed about that? Because you could be going, off a path, going down a path you don't want to go down because you're going to sit around for four years and have some guy who thinks he's way smarter than he really is, right, basically unravel everything you've ever been taught in your life. 
and get you to doubt everything you've been taught in life. And they, they love living in this mystery where there's no conclusions and there's no answers and it's just kind of left out there, right, for you to wonder, well, how is that helpful? And so even with all of our amazing discoveries about things like DNA and quantum physics and all the things that we figured out, um, there, there's many more questions and mysteries that the human mind will never be able to figure out. And, and what happens when you come to this point in your life where you realize, you know, they're just things that, that, that I'll never be able to understand. I have no clue why I'm here, how I got here, where I'm going, right? You got one of two choices. You can either give up on life and just, and just give in to despair, right, and say life's a fraud and I'm just going to waste my life and destroy my life and just live wild and reckless. Um, or we could just admit, hey, I don't have all the answers, but somebody must have them. And I bet you that someone is God, right? Uh, he knows the answers, and I'm going to go to him and ask him to guide me and to grant me the wisdom I need. Again, Riken says this. This is a really good line. He says, knowing the limits of wisdom is part of wisdom. Knowing the limits of wisdom is part of wisdom. The more we know, the more we should realize how little we know and that whatever wisdom we gain, come, we gain comes as a gift from God. And then he goes to verse 26. And I discovered, there was one thing I did discover, <laughs> all the other things I couldn't discover, I did discover more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains. One who is pleasing to God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. Some commentators say that Solomon was using the woman here as a metaphor for folly. Um, he, he does that in, in the book of Proverbs. He, he talks about these two women, the woman of folly, the woman of, of wisdom. Um, I think it makes more sense here that he was talking about a literal woman. Um, and he's referring to the loose woman, the strange woman, the, the adulterous woman, the prostitute, right, all over the book of Proverbs, okay, who ensnared and enslaved many foolish men. And he says, he's, I discovered more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains, one who is pleasing to God will escape her, but the sinner will be captured by her. In other words, if you like to play around with sin, you're going to cross this woman's path and she is going to hook you and destroy you. But if you desire to be pleasing to God, God will grant you grace and you will escape her wiles and her traps. Solomon knew. You, you wonder why Solomon spent so much time in, in the book of Proverbs talking to his son about sexual morality. Why do you think that was? He was an expert at it, unfortunately. He, he, had, he had experienced it firsthand, not just a few times. I would even say hundreds of times, if not, how many wives and concubines did he have? A thousand times. Chuck Swindoll says this, premarital escapades and extramarital affairs will not fulfill their promise to bring lasting satisfaction. Instead, they will both drag us away from a vital walk with God and bring confusion and hurt into the human relationships we hold most dear. 
And so again, wisdom. We're talking about wisdom here. What is what is what does godly wisdom do? It guides us through life and keeps us out of harm's way. For example, Proverbs chapter 7. Solomon says, "Son, listen up. I saw a young man one time going down to the wrong part of town at, at the wrong time of day." Right? I'm just telling you, son, be wise. You want to stay out of harm's way. You, you, go, you don't go certain places at certain times of day, or you're going to get yourself in trouble, right? That's wisdom, godly wisdom. That's the point. Well, one more point here. Number four, what else does godly wisdom do? It gauges our relationships and keeps us mindful of our sin. It gauges our relationships and keeps us mindful of our sin. Notice verse 27. Behold, I've discovered this, says the preacher, adding one thing to another to find an explanation, which I am still seeking, but have not found. I have found one man among a thousand, but I have not found a woman among all these. Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. So I think essentially what Solomon's saying here that in his all-out pursuit of meaning and purpose and satisfaction in life, one of the things that he pursued was human relationships. And even that disappointed him. He was disappointed with life in general, but his biggest disappointment was with other people. Anybody relate to that? (laughs) When he would meet someone, he had great expectations about getting to know them, but the more he got to know them, the more disillusioned he became. Can you relate to that? And he decided to total up the number of friendships in which he found a measure of real satisfaction, fulfillment, and out of all the people he had known, one man, right? One man only could he regard as a true soul brother, a a true friend. And so he sought repeatedly for the perfect person, right? The perfect friend, but he never was able to find a single one. Everyone he had met had some flaw or weakness or, uh, in his character. And so he says, listen, good, good men are rare. And good women is rare even still. And he found one man in a thousand that was loyal, dependable, and selfless, but he couldn't find one woman in a thousand who impressed him. And again, we don't know for sure that this was a reference to how many wives he had, concubines he had. But I think it's interesting in chapter 9, verse 9, listen to what he says. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you under the sun. For this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. In hindsight, he was wishing, right, that he had just kept it to one. A thousand was a little overdoing it. And so he praises marital fidelity, right? Just one man, one woman for life is best. And um, oh, by the way, ladies, don't take offense to this. You're like, well, that guy's a chauvinist. <laughs> I found one man among a thousand, but I have not found a woman among all these. Guys rule, girls, right? right. No, right? And he does, he's not being chauvinist. Let's not forget what else did Solomon write? Or at least what else is included in his Song of Solomon? 
How about Proverbs 31? Even though that wasn't Solomon's words, right? It's, it's considered part of his genre, if you will. Proverbs 31, exalting women, right? So he didn't have anything against women. That, that's, that's not the point here. His point is, look at verse 29. Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. He said, I'll tell you what the problem with people is. It's sin. That's the problem with people. People are sinful. And so the biggest disappointment, the biggest problem that he saw here was the depravity of the human heart and how man had fallen from from their original condition in the garden. He says that God made men what? What does it say in your Bibles? Upright. God made them upright. In other words, God created the world right side up, but man turned it what? Upside down. God made man in his own image and after his likeness. This is what we refer to as the doctrine of original righteousness, that Adam was created perfect, but then he sought out his own devices, sought sought many, as it says here, many devices, many schemes which marred and distorted the divine image. This is what we call the original sin or original sin. Um, the King James, the old King James version translates many devices as many inventions. I mean, isn't that an appropriate way to describe man's sinfulness? That we just invent ways to sin. And we're just always inventing new ways to sin. We, we invent one and we try it for a while. We say, oh, that's fun. And oh, it gets old. Let's invent another way to sin. That's man. And so sin has worked its corrosive effects on the entire human race. And so what he's saying is, hey, listen, we, we can't blame God for our sin. Sin is our fault. The reason why the world is such a mess and why relationships tend to stink between us and they're just messy and is because of sin. A great man of God years ago was asked, what's wrong with the world? And he simply said, I am. <laughs> All of us can say that. What's wrong with the world? Me. I'm part of the problem. (laughs) Okay? And so I think a deep sense of our own sin is necessary if we want to live a a life that honors God. Listen, that's a, a fool does not see his own sin. He's blind to his own sin. But a wise person is sensitive to the sin, and they have this deep awareness of how sinful they really are. William MacDonald, in his Believer's Bible commentary, said this. He said, even in his fallen condition, man still has an intuitive hunger to find perfection. Even though we're messed up, even though we're sinners, there's still something about us that hungers to find perfection. He goes through life looking for the perfect partner, the perfect job, the perfect everything. Can I hear an amen for that, right? We're out there looking for the perfect something. But he cannot find perfection in others or in himself. The trouble is that his search is confined to the sphere under the sun. And we've been talking about there is nothing perfect down here on this earth. That's why there's heaven. Only one perfect life has ever been lived on this earth. That is the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. But now he is above the sun, exalted at the right hand of God. And God satisfies man's hunger for perfection with Christ. No one else, no other thing. That's where this whole thing has to go. And we can thank God that the Bible doesn't just stop with creation and the fall, right? He created us with original righteousness, and then we messed it up. 
end of story, let's close in prayer, right? No, that's just part of the story. The Bible goes on to reveal God's plan of redemption through Jesus Christ, that while all of us like sheep have gone astray and have turned to our own way, the Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Christ. That there was the first Adam who led us all into sin, right? But there was the last Adam, Jesus Christ, who would lead us to righteousness and forgiveness. And the way he did that was he remained, Jesus remained totally upright. He never sinned. And by virtue of his perfect life and his sacrificial death on the cross and our place, he offers to forgive us of our many devices, our many sins. I'll close with the words of Riken again, he says, even if we do not have the wisdom to solve all the deep mysteries of life or to figure out everything there is to know about our place in the universe, we should at least be wise enough to see the deadly sin in our own hearts and to ask Jesus to be our Savior. That's life. That's life. And I'll just maybe say one more thing because I just thought of it. We just had the privilege of celebrating my dad's 75th birthday just a month or so ago. And so we had him over to the house, mom and dad over to the house and our kids, and we were just there having lunch together after church one Sunday. And after we were done eating, I said, Dad, I want you to tell us, and particularly tell our kids, what's the most important thing you've learned in 75 years of living on planet Earth? And in typical fashion, my dad said something like, don't buy retail, um, <laughs> wear clean underwear, and mulch your leaves or something. He said something really funny, and the kids thought, the kid, kids thought that was pretty funny. So after we laughed about it, he said, no, I, I, think the, I think the most important thing that I've learned is get saved and live out your faith. That's it. 75 years of living on planet Earth the wisdom of a godly father, a godly grandfather, right? Get saved and live out your faith. And uh, that, that'll, that'll, that's, all, that's pretty much all you need to know in life, isn't it? It's good wisdom. Let's pray. Father, thanks so much for uh, you uh, being so gracious to provide us devious, scheming, conniving sinners who, who can't get enough of sin and ways to invent sin Lord, that you have been so gracious and kind to provide us a way to escape our sinful pleasures and, and our, our destined, uh, doomed for hell status. And that is through your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that he remained upright. Thank you that he never sinned. And Lord, that he provides us the righteousness that we need to get to heaven. You say we need to be perfect to get to heaven and none of us are perfect, but Jesus is. And I pray if there's anyone here tonight who's yet to uh, conclude that life is all about knowing Jesus Christ and having a personal relationship with him, that, Lord, tonight you would grant them uh, the insight to see the truth of your word that they've heard and that they would want to make application of that wisely to their heart and life. I pray that you'd help the rest of us apply the wisdom that you've given us, Lord, so that we could um, truly see these results and these effects in our lives on a daily basis. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.